uh, Nor Hall is a uh, an archetypalist. Um, she's got this great line that she says: "To get out of the labyrinth, keep your hand on the cold, damp wall of your humiliation." Wow. I know. So that conscious humility, that humbleness, that you know, patience. I would add, like you're saying earlier, patience is huge. Um, an ability to be, you know, in psychological terms, non-defensive, but, mm -hmm. but, but that is so key, because you can use dreams defensively. You can use anything defensively. Yeah. So um, it's not about the symbol necessarily. It's about, I mean, that may come with a lot of power that gets your attention and hopefully mm -hmm. gets worked through. But it's that humbleness, that conscious vulnerability, conscious vulnerability and humbleness is so key. Hello, and welcome to another week here on the Hidden World Podcast. I'm your host, Whitney Logan, and today my guest is Dr. Judith Cooper. Judith is a licensed clinical psychologist and a diplomate Jungian analyst. She is also one of my teachers at the C.J. Jung Institute of Chicago, where I am training to become a Jungian analyst myself. I have an enormous amount of respect for Judith as a teacher, and I reached out to her earlier this summer to see if she would be willing to have a conversation with me about what makes Jungian psychoanalysis different and unique from other psychotherapy theories and processes. I'm so glad she agreed to explore this topic with me because it was such a lively, inspiring conversation, one that I'm very eager to share with all of you. Welcome to this week's episode of The Hidden World. So, um, you're, you are both a licensed clinical psychologist. Right and a certified Jungian analyst. Yes, yes. Can you tell me the difference between those two credentials? Sure, sure. Uh, I have a PsyD in uh, a doctorate of clinical psychology. Now, it's not a PhD, uh, a doctor of philosophy. Um, it's thought that there's probably some very slight differences of the two of the two um the side d degree is was was thought back when i was in school in the 80s that it was a more clinically based degree and the training is um three years of full-time classwork two one-year-long practica one in testing and one in therapy um, a uh, internship for the fourth year, full-time, um, a dissertation, and then a year-long full-time supervised experience um, after the doctorate is awarded before you can even sit for the licensing exam. And the degree is um, uh, regulated by the state. Uh, and so, um, you have to pass the licensing exam. And then you're uh, authorized to, um, in the core competencies of, of uh, psychology, which includes assessment, testing, diagnosis, um, behavioral interventions um, to address a range of problems in living, what Freud named love and work as the two main problem areas of life. Um, so that's the PsyD degree. Um, and the diplomate, as you said correctly, the diploma in um, analytical psychology uh, comes after um, uh, four years of classwork. <laughs> you're shaking your head, as you know. Uh, well, you're beginning. Um, uh, yay. <laughs> uh, and then there are uh, written and oral exams midway through. And then at the end, there's case presentations. There are um, a thesis that you have to write. And then you become certified. And that, because the Jung Institute 
uh, where I trained in Chicago, is has been authorized by the International Organization of the International Association of Analytical Psychology in Zurich to um, conduct a training program and certify Jungian analysts. So those are the differences. Uh, they're both grueling. Yes. <laughs> you know, you left out one piece of the uh -huh. analytic training that I think is sure. really important, um, which is that in analytic training, you have to be in analysis. Yes, I was going to get to that. You, you, yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> right, right. That, um, that is, I was, yes, I was going to go on to say that the academic training for the PsyD, um, in my case, was very rigorous um, and wonderful, and I appreciate it all the time. However, they did not require you to be in um, any kind of therapy, actually, which I never understood. Uh, how can you do this work without having the experience yourself? But uh, of course, you're right. In analytic training, that is an absolute requirement because Jung very rightly, I think, uh, emphasized that it is the person of the analyst that makes all the difference. It's not any technique or method or knowledge necessarily. Now, we can take that with a grain of salt, right? But um, it is the person of the analyst that makes the difference. So that you may have heard in, in your clinical training, um, you can only bring the client so far as you went. And I, and I think there's some real truth to that. So the more that we can grow and develop and um, learn about ourselves, um, the better we can help our clients, theoretically, on paper. I mean, I think, but that, I think there's a lot to that. <laughs> so. Me too. Yeah. And, you know, and I notice that um, when issues get brought up or affect comes up, and an analytic session, if it's a place in myself that I have resisted, it becomes a barrier to the work that I need to address exactly. pretty immediately. Exactly, yeah. exactly. The whole counter-transference resistances is a major stumbling block, I think, to um, helping the client. And as you know, like you, um, Jung uh, was, he's often not credited for the things that he uh, um, devised early on, but he was very much about a two-person uh, relationship. And so um, if there are stumbling blocks from the analysts, that can be quite the, the barrier um, to moving forward. And that happens probably a lot. <laughs> But you know, it's a wake up call, right? It's an opportunity. If yeah. we can only get more conscious in that moment for ourselves to yeah. you know, get consultation and understand what's going on. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, yeah. So after all of the rigorous training and education mm -hmm. required to obtain this ID, mm -hmm. why did you choose to pursue more rigorous training and education? Well, this is... Uh very personal story, I guess, and that's what you're asking for. Um, I had been in Jungian analysis. I, I, this is a second career for me. I'm old. Uh, and I was an arts and dance librarian at Chicago Public Library mm -hmm. as an art history major in college. So um, uh, in my mid-30s, after um, several years of Jungian analysis, I decided that I was a bit bored. And I went, no, I went back in, got my PsyD knowing mm. that I wanted to um, go into analytic training. Mm. So um, that's, that's what I did. I have a, a, a good friend from that time at ISPP, Illinois School of Professional Psychology, one of the first professional schools in the country. Um, uh, we talk all the time about how grateful we are for our training because um, especially now as a Jungian analyst, I can see that grounding in developmental issues and a wide array of techniques that I, I don't necessarily fall back on. It's the developmental piece that I really appreciate because um, the Young Institute in Chicago tries to uh, get, uh, present classwork in all the schools of analytical psychology, which is a thing I love about uh, uh, analytical psychology. There's three schools. There's a developmental school that developed in London, 
with the ideas of Michael Fordham. There's the classic school, which is the Zurich school, which is young, more young based, which looks at the self and uh, dreams more. And then there's the archetypal school of James Hillman. He developed with uh, Rafael Lopez Pedraza. And the thing about my own analysis in the early 80s was that my analysts seemed to, at that time, I didn't realize it because it wasn't a Jungian, but um, she, she was in training at the time. And she, first of all, she was a feminist, which I absolutely needed and loved. Mm -hmm. And then she seemed to really integrate all of those different schools of thought of, you know, branches, if you will, of, of Jungian thought that encompassed the wide range of, you can be a Jungian and be very different. And, and I love that. Mm -hmm. it, it's not rigid at all. Um, and so um, she seemed to really embody all of those schools. We, we looked at dreams, we looked at my developmental history. We, we can't be a Jungian without looking at developmental history. That's one of my pet peeves <laughs> of Jungian work. But nonetheless, people think that's, they go right into the symbol mm -hmm. and the archetypal layer, which is leaves the client behind. Yeah. But anyway, she could talk about myth, myth and fairy tales. So she embodied all of that, which was such a rich, such a rich experience for me. So that's what really pushed me. I knew that I wanted that. And after I got licensed pretty quickly in um, 1991, I, I applied for training and got in. And yeah, that was, I, I was really sure about that. Mm. Uh, that that was the trajectory for me and I feel very lucky and fortunate to have been able to do that I think that that's pretty common you know most people come to um training by way of having had a transformational experience mm. in their own analysis it's, I would hope so yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so in order to sort of distinguish between um, psychotherapy mm -hmm. and psychoanalysis. How would you describe um, maybe the difference between the outcomes that psychoanalysis concerns itself with that are mm -hmm. unique or different from mm -hmm. other psychotherapeutic approaches? I think all in-depth psychotherapies look at um, I'd say it this way, they, they look at strengthening the ego, they look at remediating symptoms, they look at um, uh, what, what Freud famously said is uh, transforming uh, misery, human misery into common unhappiness. Common, <laughs> yeah, that's, that was the language, I looked it up. Uh, <laughs> common, common unhappiness, I, they're not about... <laughs> The differential here is that we're about, like you use the word transformation, we're about wholeness, we're about Jungians, we're about individuation. I'm not sure that even psychoanalysis, that I, they don't use those words. They don't use that terminology. I think that they're certainly looking for stability in life, you know, um, maybe a little bit more than common unhappiness, you know, to get to that as the goal. Um, <laughs> But uh, so the, that's what I would say, that, that, that they're more about ego strengthening. It's making the, the unconscious conscious. It's um, strengthening the ego, meaning that they're looking at uh, better affect regulation, emotional regulation, uh, impulse control, uh, better um, self-image, uh, less projections on it. They don't, they... Uh, the psychoanalytic school really um, emphasizes repression as a defense over Jungians more emphasize projection as the defense. So they're, they're looking to make, in terms of that repression, they're lifting that repression up from the unconscious and working that, working through is the language of Freudian school, working through. I, I, I'm going to, I need to say a caveat right here because it's been a long time since I thought about psychoanalysis uh, and my friends in that over in that that other school tell me that they've come a long way in um, uh, not being you know not the 
moving from the penis envy school of, of psychoanalysis to more object relational um, two person yeah. uh, relationship. So um, anything I say about the psychoanalytic school, take, you know, take with some, uh, Here. Give me some leeway there. So then how do you understand the qualitative difference between mm. analytical psychology and maybe everything else, you know, why, why is it that this was the theory, the modality, the lifestyle, the way of life that really spoke to you? Well, it's interesting that you say way of life, because I think that's exactly right. It is a way of life. It's, I, I mean, that may sound ridiculous to some of your listeners, but um, living the symbolic life is um, the Jungian way. Now, that's not to say that we can do it for minutes at a time, but we attempt to do that. Uh, um, but that's it. That because It's the archetypal layer of the psyche that's so unique to Jung's theories that uh, holds all the creativity of the unconscious um, and the potentials of being human that are there in the, what Jung called the objective psyche. That's where the archetypes reside. And, um, we, and um, the, the concept of the, um, the ego self axis that was named by Neumann, a, a Jungian analyst in the 50s, and then was expanded by Ed, Edward Edinger um, is a really important concept that really in a nutshell for me, summarizes the work of analysis and of for the analyst's life is to connect with the symbolic, not leaving the individual behind because they are connected. That's the beauty of the ego self access. It's an access, it's a, it's a connection that, um, that is, um, you know, on a continuum in terms of where you are, but that's the goal is to um, live your life and recognize that Things are happening for a reason. That's the teleological approach that Jung takes, which he called, it's a mouthful, but he called it the constructive synthetic method, which, which basically means, basically it boils down to that symptoms have a purpose. Mm. And uh, it's not the philosophy of our culture, right? Mm -hmm. Our culture, we live in a manic culture that says, take this pill and you'll feel better. And don't think about it too much. Um, we can't ever know. We're so complicated. We can't ever know the reasons why. That's really a very strong difference to what we're talking about here with the symbolic way of life, I think. Mm -hmm. Because there's, there's always more. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that can be a daunting prospect, right? But for instance, um, in thinking about our talk today, um, I'm thinking about what example, it's hard to talk about this theoretically. I don't have that kind of mind. I, I need the specifics. Hypothetically, you know, somebody, a client has uh, severe depression, let's say, very common right now and has been. Um, if, depending on where the client is, as the analyst sits with that, if at some point the analyst can name that this client is in the underworld and name the mythological process that is that the client is undergoing, that opens things up in a way. Now you can't leave, again, you can't leave the client behind, but if you can incorporate and talk about why this person is in the underworld, you know, what developmental issues, of course, uh, you need to talk about that, but just naming that as a, um, uh, a way of understanding what they're going through, it, 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 do, it opens things up, it's into that universalizing. Now there's shadow to that, which we can talk about, mm. but the universalizing of that experience hopefully makes the client, uh, 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 triggers a feeling of not being so alone. Yes. Then you can bring in stories, you can bring in, uh, uh, this, is, this is what happens in life. 
and there are models to base this, what you do about it. I, one of my all time absolute, I mean, everybody should read this book, uh, not just people in Jungian training, obviously, but um, Descent to the Goddess by Sylvia Pereira is, I mean, we, I've taught the class, There's, we've taught it a couple times to the trainees. It's such an important book because it gives, it, it, it she, she uses, I mean, she talks about it mythologically, but with this myth, this Sumerian myth, but she has all these client vignettes and weaves in her own experiences between the lines. I mean, it's a beautiful, powerful book that um, has helped some of my clients and myself. So um, that's, that's the qualitative differences, no small qualitative difference in our work. I'll tell you a story. It's, you may know this. There's some Jungian analysts that have retrained at the Psychoanalytic Institute, people that I trained with in the 90s. So I'm pretty much still close to them. And I and um, so I go to some of their functions mm -hmm. at the Institute there. And they, they put on great, I mean, it's so interesting. Um, uh, and so one of the presentations there before the pandemic um, was of a, a man, excellent presentation where he talked about um, using clinically uh, with a client of his, uh, a myth or a fairy tale. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I started getting a little peeved mm. because this was presented as, look at this great thing that I'm doing there. And I really struggled I have a hard time speaking out anyway in groups, but I, I really struggled to um, find a way of letting him know that this isn't so unique. And I, I certainly didn't want to put him down or, you know. Mm -hmm. So I, I, um, I felt proud of myself. I came up with a way, I raised my hand, he called on me, I said, I, I said, you know, I, I thank you for your presentation. I was very polite. Um, <laughs> And I said, you know, it, it, um, I'm a Jungian analyst. And I have to tell you that listening to you makes me sad that the split between Jungians and Freudians still exist. And I've learned uh, so much from the Freudian school, object relations and all, all of that school. And, um, you know, we, in, the, in, in my world, in the Jungian world, we look at cases all the time using myths and fairy tales. In fact, um, I was part of a, um, a teaching team that taught a class on using the DSM access to diagnoses and looking at a myth, a fairy tale, and a film with all the different uh, uh, diagnostic categories. So this is something we, this is what we do. This is our wheelhouse. We can't emphasize enough how even if this psychoanalyst is using, you know, dipping his toe in that, I mean, more than that, right? He's using, he's looking at myth he's, and, and using that um, psychologically for his patient, but this is what we do all the time, right? So, um, and it can, it, it, it's, it's so crucially pivotal. Yeah, yes. I mean, in my own experience on both sides of the figurative, room having a story or a symbol or a universal um i idea or almost you know narrative path that has ancient application and modern application right that has held me or held my own analysands in the most difficult places mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. feeling lonely isolated hopeless or despairing mm -hmm. to and and i it's hard to really appreciate that i think until you have an experience with it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. That's right. 
That's right. Because they can be stories on the page until you apply it. That's, that's the thing you, you know, in case presentations, you can't tack on a story unless it organically flows from the material. It's just going to fall flat. You can't during a session say, wait, let me check my symbol book or my mythology compendium and, and just, you know, it's got, and so I usually wait until something bubbles up in mm-hmm. me to, oh, well, of course, yeah, that would happen, but you, you can't um, tack it on. It has to come organically. Yeah. And it, and it ha- again, it, you can't leave, the, the, there's this, there's this um, move that's very important. We taught a course um, before the pandemic on um, writing. It was team taught and how to write up your cases. And uh, and there was this thing that um, popped out at us about, I thought was very important about the, uh, that. And, and this is probably true in writing for all the arts too. You go from the specific, there has to be a specific grounding there yeah. in the in the story of, of the person or the narrative, or, you know, and then um, and then it becomes, if, if it's, if you keep with the specifics, it's almost like the specifics will veer toward or lean into the universal. Yes. Yes. By, by virtue of the archetypal energy that's trying to get activated. Yeah. It's, it's kind of uncanny, but that's, that grounding has to be there. You know, having worked in my own analysis for years and years and years on um, you know, kind of dif- like difficult dynamics that can sort of come up or replay themselves um, that have some, you know, origin story in childhood. So this is all very specific. Sure. Serial, right? Sure, sure, sure. And only recently, um, as I as I got, I think like closer and closer to the, um, maybe the place this this issue was born from, I had a dream that I was engaged to be married to Hades. <laughs> and, oh. and he was parading me slowly through like a somber procession through the underworld, like in front of all the denizens of the underworld. And it just looked like an underground civilization. It wasn't scary, Um, but he was walking in front of me and I'm walking behind him and I'm in this red power suit, like with a pencil skirt and a red fascinator and like red high heels. (laughs) And and I'm thinking, um, I don't wanna get stuck down here. Mm -hmm. So, So after the dream, it was like the final piece of a of a complicated um, of a of a mystery to me in some ways was sort of laid bare symbolically, mm-hmm. and um, I had just read the Old Woman's Daughter by um, Claire Douglas, oh. and she had been talking about how Jung's dealings with the Demeter Persephone myth had left out Hecate's role completely. And um, so anyway, the working through of this, with this dream and these images and everything that it meant to me, you know, I wound up painting my nails red for several weeks. You know, I love it. I love it. I I got a Hecate charm necklace. I... (sighs) I, I really started to understand that the absence of the old woman in this dynamic had kind of kept me in this cycle. Oh my. And it, it needed to now become an inner dynamic where, where yes, yes, in, yes. in order to avoid that particular trapping over and over again. And this is what, I don't know, 10 years into, into working this particular mm-hmm. issue. And, um, mm-hmm. I, I, mm. I couldn't have gotten there any faster or any other way. Yes. And mm-hmm. it's so in a way, it's such an enormous and gorgeous commitment mm-hmm. to yourself, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, mm, mm, yes. Yeah. To yeah. go this deeply and be this patient. 
Right. Yeah, that's that's a really important point. Patience. Absolutely. What a what a powerful dream. Yeah. Wow. You are at heart and soul a Jungian. I mean, the fact that you followed up and made it concrete in your life with the red nail polish and the Hecate charm. I love it. That that's what Jung says. We have a we have an ethical responsibility to um, make these dream images concrete in our lives. That's living the symbolic life. Yeah. That's beautiful, Whitney. Oh, and it's so rich. Mm, you know, it is. To it live is. the symbolic life. I, I, mm-hmm. I wonder if you'd be willing to say more about that. You know, mm-hmm. What is a symbolic life? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an important question. I mean, I, I would say that we see, we have potential, we're, um, you know, the ego narrows our lives. Uh, I have a friend who's writing a book on the breaking through the tyrannical ego. Um, it's, it, it can be tyrannical for sure, but we also need the ego, obviously, uh, our consciousness. But we're surrounded all the time. You know, this idea that we're surrounded all the time, that synchronicities are happening all the time if we pay attention. And so the psyche is always trying to bring up symbols and catch our attention that way. And we don't slow down, be patient, look, pay attention, be in our bodies, our the body, the fact that Jung incorporate, tried to incorporate the body, the feminine, very important to me, creativity. It was all about the, the imagination, all about these things that the culture doesn't value really doesn't value. We split off, we split at the neck. Um, And so the symbolic life is recognizing and valuing um, that they're all, the the potential symbolic um, pull to, for growth that is inherent, Jung said in the psyche, you know, that's, that's the difference, that's the fundamental difference too, between, um, I don't know, again, if they've moved from this, but, you know, the, I think they probably have, but the unconscious and Freudian originally was the repository of, you know, repressed sexual and aggressive wishes, which is for Jung, uh, a repository, a storehouse of uh, the wisdom of the ages, like you said, the ancients. And, and so, and this idea that the unconscious is always trying to put up more information for us uh, with dreams, with projections, with, uh, synchronicities get our attention and then we have to make sense of them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like to say that there's a, you know, it's hard to live this way every moment, moment to moment, but there's a rabbi, uh, Abraham Heschel says, we should wake up every day and feel how, and rad- he calls it radical amazement to be alive. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I don't think I'm making too much to say that if you really live in the symbolic life, the way Jung wrote about uh, with his fascination with alchemy and, and his theory, that's the kind of place that is potentially there. We can't, we can't live there every minute, but poten- the, the fact that he's even saying it's potentially there mm-hmm. is huge, it's huge. Yeah. I think it does engender a kind of amazement at being alive. Mm-hmm. That there's, mm-hmm. for me, it's sort of, um, uh, it's the antidote to kind of an existential mm-hmm. um, despair. Yeah. Yeah. It's an easy road these days to get fall into that. Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. It, it makes uh, life worth living. And, you know, and this work is so, in better moments, you know, we're never bored, right? I mean, it's so challenging. It's so enlivening. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's enlivening. Yeah. Yes. Because we can, we, we try, we know about that, trying to mediate that energy from the deep unconscious with the self. We try to constellate it in our sessions if we can. Um, not always, of course, the, if the client's not there, but to hold on to hope or, um, yeah, just the potential, just the, the 
presence of the theory in these that the, the, the theory holds these ideas mm-hmm. and images they're numinous they're numinous you know when you were talking about the tyranny of the ego it, it also sort of made me think about how learning and ex- and maybe even more so experiencing yourself as much, much more than the ego, I think in a way takes some of the pressure off. Oh yeah. You know, and there's, there's a lot of room for compassion for yourself and other people and the way we get caught in complexes and, you know, unconscious autonomous material just can drive some, you know, seemingly, um, non-ideal thoughts, affect, and behavior. But if we're looking at it like it's meaningful, right, right. Then there's a doorway to, you know, deeper connection. And instead of needing to, you know, uh, I don't know, belittle or berate ourselves for for other people. Right. Or think we could control. Yeah. You know, the ego is not in charge. That's also inherent in our theory. Ken James uh, is a great teacher. He said, well, when I was in training once, he's uh, in a class, he said, uh, we should, we should uh, remember that the chair that we sit in, it should be like a director's chair of the self. Not that we identify with the self, of course. We don't, even though clients may project that onto us for a time, but we're not in charge. And so that really, we can do a lot with our knowledge though, given that, but we are not in charge. And oftentimes I will say to supervisees or clients, life wounds, Mm. we can just be patient (laughs) and wait. Uh, uh, Suffering happens as part of life. And so uh, you don't, you know, we do, we, of course we're involved, we're engaged. I'm not saying not to just sit there like a blank screen, right? In the old, old world Freudian way, but 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 the, but the subtlety of we don't have to um, control everything or and that that's very freeing actually for our work um, very freeing yeah it's, it's real we're not in charge we, yeah. we don't we can't control yeah. yeah and to not take it so personally right 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 mm-hmm. I mean it's personal of course right. Right, right. It's that liminal, it's that tension, right? We say that, of course, we're going to feel it, we're going to be stung. That's important for the client to feel. Yes. But at the same time, we, we, we um, know that it's not, per- it's both personal and impersonal. That's the transference, right? That's the, that's the beauty of that concept, if we can remember that. <laughs> yeah. It has all these other applications outside of the analytic hour. Oh, for sure. Oh yeah, transference happens everywhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I um had this experience this this past year where um I I noticed I think as a result of analytic training, my own analysis, etc., um, that there was a really significant change mm. for me in the way I experienced other people's positive or negative projections. There was a, there was a feeling for me like, oh, that's curious. Oh, wonderful. You know? yes, yes, um, yes, yes. Which is, I mean, so liberating as a peacemaking mm-hmm. oh. middle child, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, there's a long, there's a chunk of development you just kind of work through it. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Curious. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's curious. Oh, I'm. Oh, I'm that for them. Okay. Yes. 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 Well, you know, and unhooked. And that. Um, I I think a lot about how that would be a benefit. Um, to anyone. You know, oh, yes, yes. Just, oh, sure. just to be able to understand even simply 
what projection is, right? Oh, yes, yes. It makes the world go round and to get that would be would be game changer, with <laughs> life changing. So we do it, try to do it one person at a time. Right, right, right. You know, speaking of Ken James, I, I mm. once he said to me, um, you know, some of the work of analysis is he used the word grok. Mm, yeah, and, uh, yeah, it's from the seventies. Yeah, really like, get it, really get it in like, the bones. Really get how we project the self onto others. You know, even if you're pulling back a projection that's positive. Mm. Oh, sure. You know, it means you have to figure out how to expand. Yes, uh, and with with the idea that, gee, there's something here I didn't know. That that's a, that's you know, as Jung said, uh, experience of the self is a defeat for the ego. That's an ego getting stung. Ego doesn't like to be stung no. or not know something or think it knows. You know, it doesn't know something. So yes, it's very unsettling. And that also makes the world go round. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, that dynamic. Um, but that, that see, I, I think Jungian theory is really simple and elegant. Mm. Really simple and elegant. How so? Well, it's about the ego and the unconscious and, and, that, and relating the two of them, uh, you know, in this ego self-axis. I mean, that's, that's psychopathology right there. Yeah. That's the complex... Uh, that takes over the ego from the unconscious that wants to be known that you know can act like a splinter personality you know, autonomously like you mentioned earlier um, but the work is to um, understand that process but that that to me that is really simple you've got these two great arenas of psychic life mm. the ego and the unconscious and the goal is to I mean, I, I mean, I, I think probably I'm simplifying a little bit, but that's the beauty of it. You know, there's a term I know you know that gets used a lot um, in Jungian theory, training, teaching, practice, which is relativizing mm -hmm. the ego. Yes, right. Yes. Um, you know. Exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. So, and as we're talking right now, I'm thinking, you know, really the part of us that can get stung, mm -hmm. you know, the part of us that can really feel threatened and defensive yes. is the ego. Yes. Yes, absolutely. That, if, that is. If you know that you are so much more than the ego, mm -hmm. the stinging is less. Hopefully. Yeah, it, it's. Hopefully. Less yeah. yeah. The image Freud used is a cork bobbing on the ocean. Mm. The ego is a cor the cork bobbing on the ocean. Yeah, relativizing. That's that's it. But I often say to clients, look, what's happening now in this process is that your identity is getting unsettled. Yeah. Because that's a huge thing to have happen. Yeah. We we cling to what we know. We're we're so, the ego is a habitual ego it, it and and that's not a bad thing except that it can become uh, a a kind of quote-unquote bad thing it can interfere with our full life we're living a fuller life but yes that's that's the ego getting stung is is the um is the work is it, and you know there's a great line that uh another analyst uh, one of your questions you sent me what qualities of a uh, uh, an analysander uh, patient yeah. would, would be most helpful. And this was the line I was thinking of. If we, um, the, uh, Nor Hall is a, uh, an archetypalist. Um, she's got this great line that she says, to get out of the labyrinth, keep your hand on the cold, damp wall of your humiliation. Wow. I know. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So that conscious humility wow. that humbleness that you know patience i would add like you're saying earlier patience is huge um an ability to be you know in psychological terms non-defensive but mm -hmm. but but that is so key because you can use dreams defensively you can use anything defensively yeah. so um it's not about the symbol necessarily it's about 
I mean, that may come with a lot of power that gets your attention and hopefully it gets worked through. But it's that humbleness, that conscious vulnerability, conscious vulnerability and humbleness is so key. And of course, in analysis, you've got the relationship to mediate some of that stinging. Once in a while, I'll have a, a client share a dream and they're very nervous about the dream itself. You know, the dream itself is in, in some way humiliating to them. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. Can be. Absolutely. This has happened to me as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think what you just said about the relationship um, reminded me that, that we, we almost can't, we can't learn to relativize the ego by ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's an important point. Yeah, you you need someone who's done that and can say like, hey, look, mm -hmm. welcome to the human family. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. I agree. Jung has this paragraph. I think it's in volume sixteen, and it's a footnote. And he says something about there has to be a you, uh, an an other, um, and it's very it it, it it's it feels unclear to me whether he means an actual other in this in the part of an analyst or an internal kinyomtio an internal you uh an, an another that is got enough distance to see i i don't know i think it's a both and maybe um because the work maybe takes you know jungians like to say sometimes it feels like there's no barrier to inside outside but that i mean of course there is in reality but uh, uh the can barrier can feel very um permeable or uh, so that, that, that the work is on this internal conjunctio as well, external union with these parts. That's also important work, obviously, but the mediation, you're right. You're right. That is so crucial. And that's, that's the relationship. That's the, that's the, um, that's the developmental piece that we can't lose sight of. It's not all about the symbol and the, and the archetypal layer. So it's both. Yeah. Maybe um, that's my, my kind of second to last question, um, which is, what do you think makes a good analytic relationship between analyst and analysand? That may be really broad. That's a difficult question because we can't, yeah, it, I, it really is. There's, you know, we talk when I are interviewing new patients. It's, it's kind of, you know, this feels so nebulous, but it's got to feel right. It's got to feel initially safe uh, as much as you can feel safe with somebody you don't know. Mm -hmm. and, um, there has to be, um, you know, when I interview somebody, I'm thinking, can I see this person? Do I like this person enough? Am I engaged? Mm -hmm. Because I've had the experience of not being engaged with somebody. Mm -hmm. So, or not thinking I can help them for whatever reason. So it's, it's, a, it's, a re it's an important question. It's a difficult question. I look for receptivity and, you know, and that, yeah. but that, but that you never know. Somebody can come in so defended and you're thinking, well, they're not going to stay long. <laughs> and then, you know, it blossoms into a long analysis. So that's the beauty of this work. It's, it's always yeah. uh, mysterious is the word you used. And, uh, and it, you never know. Yeah. So, but if you're looking, if, if you're on the patient side and looking, um, it's, I think it's about safety and trust, but so hard to, I mean, if somebody's wounded coming in, it's hard to evaluate that. Yes. Yeah, it is. Um, my, my husband was looking for an analyst and he was asking me what he should look for. And I, I mentioned this to my analyst and my analyst said, why don't you ask him how he knew he wanted to marry you? Uh, whoa. <laughs> that, that's, Love that. that's okay. <laughs> His, his point was, yeah, it's a feeling. It's, right, right, it's a sure, non-rational, sure. no deep feeling. Yes, yeah, yes, right. And you want it right. to be powerful enough to really right. screen the difficult arduous right. 
sometimes really, um, you know, bewildering, despairing parts of the process. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Right. What is one thing you wish everyone knew? I would say the one thing that I think that I wish people would know is to value the imagination. Yeah. Uh, Blake, William Blake said uh, the evidence of the imagination is uh, the, uh, something about the divine is shows that the imagination exists. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, the imagination that I wish people could value it. Yes, I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, that's beautiful. I remember one time having a kind of mystical experience where I, I, I felt like my, my ability to receive what came up from the imagination was, was how you talk to God (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or listen to God. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. a better way to say it. Mm -hmm. whatever god means you know and perhaps now i would say the self instead of god Mm -hmm. you know in all of its beauty and terror yes 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 exactly yep can't leave out the terror part thank you judith this is this was a pleasure this was a real pleasure whitney i'm so grateful to judith for her time her presence, and her passion for this work. The Hidden World is edited and produced by David Gomez. Our theme song is written and recorded by David Gomez. And I'm your host, Whitney Logan. Be good to yourselves and each other. <laughs>